Hey, you're here with Dr. Jody, and this is Anxiety. I'm so done with you. I am so excited about this podcast. It's an accompaniment to my book by the same name, Anxiety. I'm so done with you. It's a teen's guide to ditching toxic stress and hardwiring your brain for happiness. Because that is what we're going to do in this series. We're ditching that freaking toxic stress and hardwiring your brain to generate happiness every day. This is what you do. You read or listen to a section of the book, then come on over here and listen to an episode where we're going to go a little bit deeper, give more examples, and tell more stories. I want to give you everything you need to be sure that you find your way out of this horrible anxiety cycle so that you no longer have to suffer. Please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That'll help me get in the ears of more people who need this series. Mental health problems are skyrocketing, especially among teenagers, and this series is going to change the tide. Hey, welcome to this episode. We have a special treat for you today. This is my nephew, Jude. Hello. I'm going to interview Jude because he's a great representative of Generation Z, and we're talking in this season about where anxiety came from, comes from, why we have it so much, what's going on for us biologically and culturally and emotionally and all the things in this season. And so I thought it'd be really great to hear a story from somebody so that you could relate to what's going on. And Jude might ask me some questions, but mostly I'm going to be asking Jude some questions. So let's get started. You know, anxiety is really different for everybody. Everybody has different feelings on it. I feel like it works on us all in similar Mm -hmm. ways, but we think about it differently. We experience it differently. We're upset or Mm -hmm. afraid of different things. So give us an introduction to your experience with anxiety. Yeah. So I think I really started to notice my anxiety and name it as anxiety, probably around 16 or 17. Um, years old. Yeah, 16 or 17 years old. But as I look back, you know, I can really recognize it probably from the time I was four or five. I, I have distinct memories of uh, how how I perceive anxiety, right, is, is kind of like this unconditional worry. And so one of the ways that I remember that expressing most frequently uh, was was when I was in the car and I can remember being very aware of the speed limit and you know if my mom or dad were driving five or ten miles over it would really freak me out I would get really worried Um, so that was kind of when I look back one of my main introductions uh, to how I understood anxiety so can I ask you about that yeah. unconditional worry? I, I love that description. It's a, a description I haven't heard from. And I love how people have their like experience near way of describing yeah. things. Because it's not then a diagnosis or a mental illness. It's like a description of what we're going through. Right. Say more about how you came up with the unconditional worry. Well, I think that's really what happens when I when I experience anxiety. It's kind of like this train that doesn't stop where I just kind of go from one thing to the next. And, you know, there's a degree of rumination in there for me, um, you know, just kind of thinking about it over and over again. But it's not something logical. There's no there's no way for me to stop it logically, you know, that it's, it's uh, kind of runaway. Mm. Okay, so the unconditional is mo- mostly like lack of logic. 
Yes. Like it, it didn't have to be, it, there was no conditions that caused it. It just is it, going it's from one thing to another. Occurs, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So w- when you were 16 and 17, you said then it became almost a, di- a little bit different than yes. all growing up. Tell us, tell us about it. So I think my relationship to anxiety changed in large part because that's probably about when I started to do uh, therapy. And so, you know, I could really name and explore anxiety in a more concrete way as it applied to myself. And so, you know, part of that work was also looking back at uh, my younger life and looking at that. And it kind of took me a while to really realize how present it's been throughout my life. Mm-hmm. You know, one one characteristic of anxiety for myself is, is really kind of this, uh, how I hold my stomach. And, you know, it's like, I, I can't relax mm-hmm. my stomach. And so as a, as a child, I had like, pretty defined abs just because they were (laughs) I was always just um keeping my my stomach in which is kind of funny but it's like one it's just an interesting way that um anxiety expressed itself physically for me and yeah yeah in whatever way it did so it speaks of that tension and maybe a layer of protection protecting your soft belly by yeah absolutely um yeah, I, I mean, that's always just kind of been like a place of that I felt um, anxiety, I think I, I think up into my upper chest as well. That's really where I feel it um, kind of bloom. How do I want to say this? There's there's like a real energy to it in my chest. I can really uh, feel it and define it as kind of this tightness. Mm. Um, and maybe whereas my anxiety expressed in my lower stomach is more like um, a symptom of the anxiety, like what I really, where I feel the anxiety blooming is really in my stomach or in my uh, upper chest. And then you're saying that you feel like your stomach's squeezing is a response yes. to that feel, that blooming in the chest. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that um, tenseness is not something that's uh, located just in my stomach. You know, I can remember always just being very high strung as a child, you know, like my shoulder blades were always really far up and I, I would have trouble relaxing. I I started to become aware of it maybe, I don't know, ninth or 10th grade when I really started to become aware of how much I tensed up and I would have to relax myself. And I was just surprised how much further down my arms <laughs> went down my, my body when I would do that. But uh, it's just funny. It's funny how you, you know, like for a long time, it's just ingrained. And then, and then I started putting work behind it and it, and it would change. But I mean, that's just what I knew. I knew myself being very tense and uh and high up what you're describing is you were becoming eventually in ninth, tenth grade and then in therapy in six and 16 17 years old and how you're describing it now you're witnessing yourself right yeah yeah and can you tell us that process of how you started to become an observer of yourself if that's interesting I don't mm. know. it's interesting to me yeah <clears throat> i know it i know how that affects people so i'm curious how that affected you yeah, so when I when I think of becoming an observer of myself, I guess what I think about is metacognition, which is which is like the ability to be present to your own thoughts, right? It's a shift from um this isn't really scientific, but in my head how I how I would think about it is is kind of like this instinct of like this is how I behave because this is what I do. And then kind of coming into a situation where you can be aware of your thought process as it develops. And so, yeah, I mean, that 
the ability of being able to really look at the process of my thoughts and how they came to be really changed the way that I was able to think about it. And it's something that I did with professional help. I think it's something I could have done alone, but it was definitely. um, How did it change how you thought about it? Well, I would say until very recently, I, I still hadn't mastered the idea of I am not my thoughts, which, um, you know, has been really powerful for me, especially in my recovery from uh, drugs and alcohol. I, you know, like if you think about cravings, one of the ways that I've I've been able to approach cravings now is really this this understanding that what I'm thinking is that's not necessarily doesn't define who I am. And so being able to differentiate those two things has been really important. I still don't think I really answered your question, though. That's okay. That's brilliant. Brilliant information. So you're you're beginning or you referred to your struggles with drugs and alcohol. Do you want to introduce us to that story? So let's see. I mean, mostly it was really with with drugs. My primary uh, drugs of use were marijuana, cannabis, and, and LSD. When did that start? That really started kind of at the beginning of quarantine is when I, you know, I, I had uh, smoked weed before then, but really when I started uh, using it on a daily basis was, was around the start of quarantine. Can you tell us how old you are now? Oh, yeah. Um, to give us reference when you're ref- referencing back when you were younger. I want to know how old you are now. I mean, I know, but I want everybody to know. I have to, I have to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three. 22, 21. <laughs> Wait, no, it'd be 21, 20, 19, so three years. So I would have been like 16. Okay, but how old are you now? Oh, I'm 19. Oh, oh I'm 20 now. <laughs> I just had my birthday. <laughs> I thought you were counting how old oh, you were Oh, now. no, no. No, I had to count back. I can't remember. 2019 is just a weird <laughs> amount of time away. Yeah. Okay. So in the beginning of quarantine, we all know what that means. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I'd been really finding outlets for myself before then I was really involved in school a lot of extracurriculars you know track and I was part of student government I was in charge of the yearbook making the yearbook I ran the business club so I was very heavily um, involved after school and that really was really good for me you know I I have a pretty busy mind so being able to put it to work was uh was a really great thing for me. And and when when things started to shut down, I really struggled. And I think an easy outlet for me, you know, in terms of redirecting my uh my mind's attention was smoking weed. It was a way to spend my time. It kind of filled the hours. And there were definitely parts of it, you know, like if I look back, I think one thing that happens a lot in recovery is kind of that I've noticed in recovery is this wholesale demonization of someone's time in addiction, right? There's, there's a reason that I kept going back. It was fulfilling something for me. And so I think that's an important thing to remember looking at my life now and, and in what ways, am I, what ways am I fulfilling that now in a different way? You know, in my, in my addiction, it was really fulfilling kind of this creative outlet for myself. I would spend most of the time like listening to music and it changed the chemistry in my brain in such a way that it allowed me to really listen and become observant to it. Now, you know, in my in my sobriety, what I've realized is that's not something exclusive to 
drugs. You know, it was something that there's this great analogy that I love that's used often when talking about meditation, this state of mind that is reached in meditation. And it's usually, so it's usually used in regard to psychedelics. So they describe a mountain climber climbing to the top of the mountain versus someone flying to the top with a helicopter, right? Like we both get to the same destination and we see the same beauty in things, but the way we got there is just so different that the mountain climber wouldn't call that climbing a mountain at all, right? Like we've seen the same vantage point, the same uh, beauty that I found in in using uh, drugs, but, you know, like I didn't put in the work to get there. And so there's, it always disappeared. And so what I've found in my, in my recovery is kind of like this more permanent state through meditation and, and through intentional living. Okay, cool. What else do you want to tell us about your journey through drugs? And then, and then we'll get to your sobriety. Yeah. My journey through drugs. Let's see. Yeah, so it started when I was at the beginning of quarantine and then kind of progressed. I mean, I, I reached a point where I was I was doing acid like at least once a month. I mean, there was probably a good three or four month period where I was doing it. If not every other week, then every week, which was, you know, kind of weird. It's like just being, it's like going through life in kind of a dreamlike state, especially at that age, I think, because it's it's such an age of, real transformation um where you kind of come into yourself so to have so much of that taken up by psychedelic experiences and and really not being sober was no doubt really was transformative but also you know like if I look at how I am now there's just so much that's the same from before that period in my life so it was kind of like this weird period for like three years where I was, I really lost a lot of my curiosity, um, for life, Mm. you know, and I thought that's what I was exploring deeper was kind of the curiosity, but it's just interesting, you know, just the way it ended up expressing itself. And, you know, I look back now and I realize just like in all of the, the great ways that I'm able to experience life now. How did it affect your life or your relationships or school, your anxiety? I would say that school was not really affected. I never really had uh, a tough time in school. So that was actually one of the reasons why I would rationalize away why I was okay. It was like, well, you know, I still, I'm still doing great in school. So hmm. relationship-wise, it really, really uh, hurt my relationships. I think the nature of a lot of people in addiction is one of secrecy, which is no doubt tied to self-worth, right? Like, I'm, I know I'm doing something shitty and I'm a, can I, can I? Yeah, it's okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Beep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, like I'm doing something shitty and I know I'm doing something shitty. And so part of me was, was like, I want to keep from hurting people that I love. So I really mm. um, kind of faded into myself, which was, which was kind of like this double-edged sword because now not only do I have no community with which to really interact and talk about how I'm struggling, but it also really hurt people who I was uh, in relationship with. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a tricky thing. Hmm. It's a tricky thing. How did you get sober? Well, 
I jumped out a window and I broke both of my arms. So <laughs> that was uh, that was kind of my wake up call. I mean, before that, I, I had really put a lot of. Oh wait, maybe I should explain that first. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. I. It was. Uh. It was almost a year ago. It was actually a year ago in two days. I um I jumped from my second story window and onto my neighbor's driveway under the influence of LSD, and yeah, I mean I woke up in the hospital and I just my my first words were I need help, um and that's what I that's what I needed and and from that point you know I've I've been able to really uh, gain so much from the community of my family and. And, you know, Rochester has a really fantastic recovery community as well. Like really just so many meetings all of the time. So I was really able to take advantage of that and, you know, do a lot of work on myself. And that was certainly not something that I, you know, it's not a point I wish to have gotten to, but I'm very grateful to be where I am now. And, you know, it's all, you know, sometimes you have to hit your bottom. That's just the nature of it. I was actively trying to stop using drugs. Um, I would keep like a log, like a notebook where I would record my use and like try to taper off. But you know, that's the thing about addiction. It's not as easy as like just without any help either. Yeah. So it was, it was difficult. Um, a lot easier after breaking both of my arms. Cause it's kind of hard to be like, to justify it after that point. I mean, not to say that people don't, but like for me, it was really like, Oh, like, yeah, I, I really could have died. So it seems like a small price to pay to like live my life. You know, I don't think of it as a price at all anymore. It's really kind of a gift to be and able for a to... while you couldn't get out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was that helped. Yeah. That helped too. Yeah. I mean, for, <laughs> I was really under the care of my parents and they were just so supportive um, of me and all of my extended family too. you know, bringing food and sending well wishes and, and just really supportive. Yeah. Not being able to get out certainly helped. But I think it was really the community and the support that I received that that made the difference. You know, I've seen a lot of recovery rooms that that's not a support that people have. And I'm just really lucky to be able to, you know, convalesce in such a supportive environment. Yeah. And I, I realize it's not my time to talk. It's your time. But I wanted to at least acknowledge here because I'm your aunt. I'm not just a stranger interviewing you. Yeah. And it's quite tender hearing you talk about this because I witnessed it and it was incredible. The fact that you survived, it was a miracle and we're so grateful for it. Yeah. But like you said, there was such a caring environment and I wanted to second that. It was awe-inspiring watching your family mobilize and circle the wagons to take care of you with such thoughtfulness and presence and love. Yeah. Your parents and your siblings, they really came together. Jude's one of five. Yes, yeah. So they all came. Uh, they all came home luckily, which was you know really great. And I, it's interesting to look back because I can remember like the little things that really freaked me out. Like I had both of my arms in casts, so I had trouble putting on shirts and wearing long sleeves. So I really i I bawled my eyes out because I thought I was gonna have to wear polo shirts for like the next four four months or something and my brother went to Goodwill and got me a ton of like extra extra large polo shirts <laughs> which is now you know like you think about all the things that happened and like that's what I really chose to kind of cry over but <laughs> you were so sweet you were touched I was touched I was also just kind of mad because I, I really hate polos 
<laughs> did you wear any of them? Oh, yeah, I did. I wore all of them. And actually, I still wear a few to this day because I think they're <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, a lot of surrender, isn't it, to have no arms Yeah, a lot, a lot of surrender. You know, you really, I mean, it's hard to believe that it was less than a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I I started playing guitar maybe two years ago, and so for three or four months, I really couldn't play guitar. I also had some jaw damage, um, so I had trouble eating for a while, too, which is, you know, like, just thinking about it now, like, I can open my mouth very wide, but, like, I couldn't before, and so it really just makes you grateful for so many things that you can take for granted. I mean, you could have, you fell on your head. Right, yeah, yeah, it could have been. That's pretty miraculous. <laughs> You can't see him, but he's very handsome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Taking applications <laughs> for dates. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that's even that's neat in and of itself. You. Uh, so yeah, you were kind of a little forced into sobriety, but you chose it from the moment you woke up. Yes. Yeah. I. I. Um... I decided that's what I wanted. And it's not something, you know, like I said, it wasn't something that I had not considered before. I had been doing that actual, I had been almost a month sober at that point, actually, um, because I, I just wanted to see if I could do it. And so, yeah, I mean, there were definitely, there's definitely still an, an interest beforehand of, of, I was kind of done, but yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. it served as the final straw for me. Yeah. Yeah. So you had this time and space because you were sitting in, in recovery and recovering physically mm -hmm. from the fall. How was the anxiety then? Because you're an overthinker, mm -hmm. you know, you're an active thinker, mm -hmm. you're a very powerful mind, very intelligent. How was that? You were forced to yeah. be still and... It was really hard. It was really, really hard. I, um, the other part of that, right? So I didn't really talk about this part too much, but if I also think about my cannabis use... Um, that was a huge part of my anxiety. I think it's really easy to kind of write it off as an anxiety reliever, but just, just the state that it puts you in, the baseline that it puts you in is such a higher state of anxiety. And so, you know, I was coming off of that. I was, I was detoxing really. And so for those first couple of weeks, I had a really, really hard time. I, I, um, I like to move a lot. I like to engage my mind and I didn't really have as much of a space to do that. I was watching a lot of TV. I don't really care so much for TV shows. Yeah, that was hard. I was, I was reading a little bit, you know, once I started reading, I really found that I controlled my anxiety a lot through reading, which I think makes sense because, you know, it's like an, it's, it's an escape. Right. And so I was just choosing a different escape at that point. I was reading Lord of the Rings, really great, great series. Some some escapes are good escapes. Yeah, some some escapes. Are I good am escapes. all for reading fiction yeah. to help with anxiety. I yeah. think that's it's really powerful because you're in relationship with the characters, and so you're engaged, not disengaged. Yeah, I mean, I I um I can't say that I've ever cried after a TV show ending or a movie ending, but you know, I get really invested in in books, and for those next couple days after I'm I'm done, I really mourn the loss of that world because mm, it's yeah, it's just so fascinating, and I really get so engrossed in it, um, and the characters and just the way that the author writes. I'm thinking of another series now, Aragon by Christopher Paolini. You know, it's just the language is so beautiful. You know, I finished and then I couldn't read anything for like another week. I just had to like sit with 
what I had just read. Yeah, transformative. Yeah, it is. It really yeah. is. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So you had to, uh, so I like what you said about cannabis because I find that a lot with the people I work with is that when they're off cannabis, their anxiety goes down and they think that they need to smoke to sleep or to, because it's the only thing that relieves them, but it feels like they're withdrawing when they're not on it. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I was reaching a point where I would start having panic attacks and I really do attribute that to my cannabis use. If I think about the periods in my life in which anxiety were the highest, which was really this this period between 16 and 19, it was dominated by cannabis use. And so I think for sure that for me, what I came to realize is that it, it was really, really, really affected my anxiety. And yes, in like the short term, you know, I don't even know if I would say in the short term, like when I would smoke weed, if that I felt like I had less anxiety. I think I just... I'd get really paranoid and I kind of enjoyed being paranoid. <laughs> I would like go into a, I would like go into a, uh, like a corner store or something. And I'd be like, Oh, I, I wonder what everyone's thinking about me, which is just like, so that's also just like very, you know, like ego, egocentric. But that was, I think that was part of the appeal of cannabis for me. It was like, Oh, like I just felt so it's kind of like in a fishbowl. Yeah. Like in a fishbowl, it was like kind of like an escape room. Like I was just figuring out how to like deal with those emotions as they came up. Hmm. But yeah, yeah it, it certainly, uh, it was a very anxiety producing thing for me. And I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah. And I when think they it's, smoke. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really, they feel a relief or a difference. It's hard to know what's causing it and what's right. relieving it. Right. I mean, it stays in your body. It's, it's fat soluble. So really it sticks around. Yeah. So you're detoxing. You're sober a year ago and the first few weeks was hard because you used to get active, do stuff, keep your mind really engaged. That's how you dealt with your anxiety and you couldn't do that. What happened after those first few weeks? Well, you know, I started getting into a rhythm. um, And so I was, I was really doing a lot of stuff. You know, I was going to drug counseling. I was in a group for drug counseling, which was, which was nice. You know, other young people were in that with me. I was going to a lot of recovery meetings. I did 90 and 90, which for those unfamiliar is going to 90 meetings in 90 days, you know, which is really helpful. You just kind of get really ingrained in the recovery community. And what else did I do? I started working with a um, recovery coach as well, Robert Veter. I think he's really instrumental into my um, long-term sobriety. You know, his thing is really kind of being you know, like recovery is part of life, but life shouldn't be explicitly about recovery, mm, right? And like, nice. that's, that's a big difference. So like when we, when we have sessions, we'll go and go rock climbing or like last week we did hot yoga. And then, you know, in a couple of days, we're going to go to a metal show. So it's like all of these kind of things in which life occurs and doing it with people who can appreciate the beauty of the world as it is. I think is really kind of what what um, has changed a lot of it for me. But but back to what you were asking about anxiety, you know, I think it was <clears throat> getting out of my head a lot, you know, and realizing that other people really struggle with this stuff too, and I'm not alone in it, um, and I don't have to be alone in it, was really powerful for me. Um, you stopped pushing people away. Like oh yeah, yeah, that also made a huge difference, right? Like I was, I I lied a lot through my addiction, so to be in such um, 
complete honesty and really all of my relationships all of a sudden was, uh, was a really powerful thing. It, it really kind of like took away this layer that I had constructed for so long of like, okay, well, what did I say to this person? And how does that line up with what I'm going to say to this person? Really just freed up so much bandwidth, you know, that I was spending about worrying about making sure my story lined up. Um, and you don't really have to make sure your story lines up when you are just telling your story as it is. I mean, it's true. Yeah. I observed something else too that I feel like I've you've you've uh, touched on. There was a all of a sudden a lack of resistance. You know how you're talking about your yeah. stomach being tight and the and you were maybe like running away. So doing all these activities, you're yeah. always trying to keep yourself right. busy. There was a little bit of resistance to whatever it was, the fear was or yeah. something. And then there was a point in the beginning really yeah. this year that there was a shift and you stop resisting things. And it was like, there's this openness, which I think goes along with being truthful or being right. open or not pushing people away. There's a. Right. I think you can only be as truthful with other people as you're being with yourself. Um, you know, I was uncomfortable for a lot of my, a lot of my youth. I think I just felt like my interests did not line up with what a lot of people um we're interested in I love to talk about music I loved listening to music um you know I was I was really curious I asked a lot of questions which had a tendency to uh annoy people which which makes sense I would, no, I would just like not yeah <laughs> I would just non-stop ask questions and like some of which I knew the answer to but you know I just really liked asking questions so you know what I think I found one I could just be what I realized is that there are people who share those interests with me. And just because I wasn't exposed to them in my youth doesn't mean they aren't there. Right. So like the communities that I'm a part of now really are things that are important to me and, you know, that I'm passionate about. And so I think partly I felt like I wasn't really exploring my passions or I didn't have maybe even the words around it to say what I was passionate about. But, you know, like in, Going but not a my, sense of belonging. Yeah, not a sense with of that. Yeah, not a sense of belonging passion. with that, right? So, and not a sense of belonging because no one else was doing that. And I think a lot of my being one of five, I think I I really held on to this idea of kind of like following along. I um, you know, I can remember before I did any student government, I'd kind of like said to myself, like, I'm not going to tell my parents about this because none of my other siblings have done this. And so it wasn't so much shame as like, it was just like secrecy. Like, I just didn't want them to know. Like, it was just kind of like my thing, you know? Um, but that, that continued on. And so, yeah, what, what changed is this openness, um, you know, to be, to explore who I want to be, um, to be more comfortable with who I am and be able to be aware of my, um, my faults and shortcomings and be able to recognize them. Cool. Yeah. Tell me about your anxiety now. Sorry. I feel like you keep asking me that and then I just go. No, did, no I don't think, <laughs> did I ask you yet? Oh no, maybe. I don't think so. No, okay. My anxiety not. Oh, like my anxiety right now. Yeah. The, not right this second, but I mean like given this, you know, you're recovering all your learning and these sense of belongings and getting connected with the community and being open and honest, yeah. all the things you're talking about, how did it affect anxiety yeah. at all yeah so I think uh if I look at my anxiety now what I really have to talk about is like my consumption of different things I think my anxiety in large part what I found um so I'm 
I'm mostly straight edge, so I don't. So that means I'm I'm vegan. I don't do drugs. Um, what I found is that a lot of the processed food that I was eating did not help with my anxiety. Mm. You know, uh, just around Christmas time this year, what I realized is I was just eating cookies all the time, and my anxiety was so so high. Mm. Um, and so my body is really sensitive to everything that I'm putting in it, and that's something that. I kind of thought was kind of like BS. It's something that my mom was often about. Like she'd talk about like an efficient meal and we kind of make fun of her for using the word efficient in a meal. <laughs> we we were all raised vegetarian and, you know, there was a fair amount of um, disagreement over that. But, you know, not, like we've all reverted back to being vegetarian now. And I, <laughs> I was just thanking her the other day for 11 years of vegetarianism because it has made my body sensitive and I'm aware of, uh, the ways that what I put in my body affect me. And so, you know, if I think about some of the ways that I'm most aware of when my anxiety peaks, I guess what I should say is that my anxiety in general is really manageable now. Um, you know, part of that is right. I'm on, I'm on medication. I use, um, an antidepressant at a high level. So I don't know, I haven't been at a baseline while sober, you know, so I haven't, Partly I have an interest in that just because like if I'm looking at removing things to kind of see where I am initially in the same way that I removed meat or drugs from my diet, like what does what does a Jude who's just living on food and water, what does that look like? But I'm also aware of, you know, like where I am right now. And it's it's a safe thing to be using these kind of drugs while I'm in such a transitionary period. So I'm weighing that out. And so I'm, I'm sure that helps with my anxiety. But really what I notice on a day-to-day -day basis is caffeine plays a big part in my anxiety. Um, but if I, aren't, if I don't use any kind of caffeine during the day and I get out and do physical exercise, it's, it's really nominal, the amount of anxiety that I experience and manageable. In such a way that when I experience big bouts of anxiety, it's kind of... You can pinpoint something? Well, I can totally pinpoint something, but it's also like, oh my God, like this is just how I was for years, mm. you know? And I can't believe that this was my baseline. Like sad for little Jude? Yes. Yeah, I mean, also just kind of like amazed at like... It's like when you have a thorn in your side and you don't realize that it's there until it's gone. You know, like how different it can be. Yeah. And so that was, I think, it's also really empowering now to know that it's not something that's permanent and you know I was looking through the first the first page of your book and I know that's kind of one of the first things you touch on is is this idea of right like I know that this isn't going to be permanent and that's a huge part of of how I live my life now is is recognizing the impermanence of um you know everything I mean anxiety specifically when I'm thinking about um how high my anxiety is, but all kinds of things. I mean, my cravings, mm, happiness, sadness, joy, it, it all just kind of goes along with, with impermanence for me. Cool. Yeah. You mentioned so many things that you use in a daily way or you participate in in a daily way to support yourself. Maybe we could just summarize sure. by listing the things that you take to keep your mental health as good as you can. Yeah. So um, I think I would start with 
my new understanding of kind of my relationship to my body and my mind. Um, so I believe in like a body, mind and soul. And so, you know, a lot during um, a lot of the anxious years of my life, I think I was really just stuck in my head and I wasn't listening to my body, which is like the response for me that I describe as anxiety. It's like not really, you're not listening to your body and what it needs. Mm. And so as I've uh, done more meditation, you know, I, I noticed this, this kind of this other thing that comes up, which is really like how the body controls the mind. And in meditation, you know, that comes from this stillness and the belief that, you know, still body, still mind. Uh, and so when I'm looking at that, you know, I really, that really has helped me to look at how they go hand in hand. And so if I were to sum it up in, you know, a couple, three things that I do every day, I think I would probably say like diet. So I think one thing that's become really important to me is hydration. You know, just like being fully hydrated seems like a small thing, but it just like, I feel so much better after I drink a ton of water and I feel hydrated for the day. Um, two, for me, I get a little antsy when I don't have anything to do. And so I've gotten more comfortable when I'm either talking to people or just on my own, like playing guitar, just having something to do with my hands, because that's a way that I think I really express my anxiety, you know, is through this restlessness of my body. And so that almost kind of goes opposite to what I'm saying about stillness, stillness. But, you know, like in, in moments where I can't be still, it's been really helpful for me. Um, kind of helps me concentrate my thoughts. And then thirdly, you can be meditative about movement too. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure playing the guitar is very meditative in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a practice to it too, in the same way that there's a practice to meditation. Um, and it's kind of moving from one thing to the next, but let's see, what would my third thing be? You said exercise. Exercise. Oh, I didn't say exercise yet, did I? You, you have this, yeah, this yeah. whole time. But Exer exercise is probably the other big thing. So but eating right, hydrating, meditating, having something to do with your hands. Yeah, well, I, th I think what that comes down to is like a creative outlet. Creative outlet. Yeah, and so that can also be reading, right? Like if I think about what reading a good fiction book is, it's getting into another world. And so, I mean, when I'm playing music, it's the same idea. It's It's... You know, whereas music is maybe more of an outlet because, like, you're producing something. Um, I could understand how someone might not feel the same way about reading. But, like, what my mind is creating while I'm reading is really what I'm talking about in terms of a creative outlet. You know, mm -hmm. like, the the uh, story and the visuals that are being created in my mind, I think, is really just such a great creative outlet that I use on a daily basis. Excellent. Yeah. Well, it's very validating to what I already told him this season, so that's really awesome. Yeah, it's been great, great sitting down with you. Yeah, and thank you so much for hearing about uh, your story. For having me, this is anything so else you think you left out or I forgot to ask you about, or I don't know. I guess I guess we didn't talk too much about like Generation Z, but what I would say in terms yeah. of in terms of that, you know, I guess I don't know what I would say in terms. What do you of think that. about your generation and what's going on with them? Um. My generation kind of bugs me a little bit, <laughs> but mostly, mostly just in the way that we interact. You know, I think part of becoming very honest with myself has been this move towards interaction in a way that I enjoy, which is really face to face. So I, I'm not saying that I don't do this because I do this all the time, but 
I struggle sometimes when I see people with just like their heads in their phones all the time. So I, I make an active effort to not do that and really be present for the world around me. I, I guess I also have an open question as to what's so unappealing about this world that like we always go to our phones. Do you think that's why people look at their phones because the world's not appealing? Well, I think it's an anxiety thing in part. I think, um, you know, if I'm sitting in a room and I do this now, if I'm sitting in a room and like just looking straight ahead, like it's weird. But if I'm on my phone, like looking at something like that's more socially acceptable. So now I just like stare at a wall and think when I'm like at a, in a waiting you office. You can stare at other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then I get really get some attention. <laughs> um, but yeah, like finding that, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, I think is a big part of what not using my phone has been for me. It's like a pacifier, you know, it's something familiar. Do you think your your generation has trouble being uncomfortable? I think that my generation has become familiar with being comfortable. You know, I think that's kind of the default setting. And I think in a lot of the things that are being provided, it's like uh, a lot of the things we do are like pacifiers in one way or another, you know, like being on our phone and like consuming media. Sorry, this is getting like a little bit ranty. I don't mean it to get. <laughs> I don't think we should have phones. That's all I'm saying. I don't think phones are good. Um, but yeah, I that, that's just what I believe. Yeah, they, I could I could talk about that for a while, but I won't. Um, I did. I had a whole um, a whole episode on it. Oh, on no phones. Uh, not no phones, but on how phones affect are affecting us. Yeah, I think they provide a huge source of anxiety. You know, and when I think about social media and when I open social media, that that primary uh, trigger is really anxiety that I feel. You know, it's like, oh, I haven't checked this recently. Like, I need to check it. Um, and I know that it's probably. Do you know what you're checking? Like, what are you checking? Well, it's like the lottery thing. Are you familiar with that idea of like uh, how? refreshing social media and seeing if you have anything new is is like it gives you the same um brain response as like running a lottery machine and like getting all sevens oh like a slot machine yeah a slot machine yeah oh okay yeah so um interesting yeah and i can feel it you know i can feel like the the reward or disappointment when i do or do not have new notifications which is just like a total hijacking of our brains you know yeah so what if like what if you get a notification and then you check it and it's something boring? <laughs> and I turn off like, I turn off my phone, but then like I, sometimes <laughs> like the notifications are very interesting. Yeah. It's the buzz that's more exciting. Yeah. Um and you know, you know, I bring it back to um addiction a lot because that's my experience, but you know, they've also done studies about the process of making a drug deal is sometimes has the exact same effect on the brain is actually taking the drugs it's like that same kind of idea right it's like this you might you might get something there's the chance of you getting a notification that's that's like what's the appealing part and you don't know if you're gonna get one um and then you're sad if you don't yeah and then i spend time on social media so that's that's kind of one of my uh big 2023 goals is to spend less time on my on my phone how are you gonna do that well you know i work I, I surround myself with people now who really don't use their phones. Um, and so really from the hours of when I'm at work, when I'm working, which is at a, you know, a, a guitar repair shop from the hours of 11 and five 
I'm really not on my phone because I just enjoy being present so much. Um, and so I guess if I'm looking at this coming year, what I really want to do is focus on becoming uh, more present and being in situations where I feel present so that I don't feel the need to look at my phone. You know what? Excuse me. I just want to enjoy the moment. Excellent. All right. Cool. Cool. What What are some messages I hope you want to send out to young people? People younger than you, mm. people your age, maybe a little older. Um, I think it can all change, you know. And the amount of time it takes to change is kind of misleading because when you start when you start changing your behaviors it feels like this huge mountain but looking back like I'm about to come up on one year sober and it's like it doesn't feel like that long of a time you know it's really it's really just day by day that you uh you continue to make the decisions that will lead you in the right direction and every day is different yeah and I think really believing in uh your ability to do that and be your own change maker has been really important to me. You know, like I, I have the power to, to change myself. I think that's one of the most important things that I've really developed this year. Do you know how you learned that? Like what was a, was there a story about when you learn your power? Okay. I would say that goes back a little bit to, um, you know, community. And so one way I heard it expressed really well is kind of like, my courage and my faith is, is like a candle. And sometimes other people have to hold that candle. And so I've had people in my life who've been able to hold that candle for me and remind me of, no, you can do this. Like I believe in you and having someone that believes in you, even if it's not yourself initially is so important because I know, especially for myself, you know, I really in that early time, I relied a lot on what other people thought of me. To, so to surround myself with people who um, knew me as I wanted to be, I think is so important and continues to be really important to me. Okay. So sometimes people held your candle for you when yeah. you couldn't hold it or yeah. held hope for you right. or believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself. Yeah. That helped you be able to take your candle back sometimes. Right. Not that they stopped holding it, but they relit yours or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so I can think about that, right? If I think about my relationship with Robert, um, my recovery coach, you know, a lot of the things we did put me really outside my comfort zone. And I'd be like, oh, I don't really want to do this or like, I can't do this. And he's like, yeah, you can. Yeah, I know you can. And I was, and it was like a little bit frustrating because I knew he was right. But like, <laughs> <laughs> what did he make you do? Oh, just like all kinds of things. Like we would go, oh, Early on, we would always go for runs. And so it would be like, we meet at like 6am at a park on a Friday, and it's like 30 degrees out and we'd go for a run. And I'd be like, Robert, I just do not want to do this right now. And he's like, yeah, me neither. But let's go do it. And it's kind of like that, you know, that. So he's getting you used to being uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And being okay with it. Yeah. And you know, as time has gone on, I've, I've gotten to be the one that's pushed him a little bit and I'm trying to get him to go skydiving because he has a fear <laughs> of heights, but <laughs> we're taking that one step at a time. <laughs> I'll go with you. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I went, I went when I was your age. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really hoping to do that before the summer. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I like this metaphor, the candle. Yeah. So he just keeps, he keeps inviting you to hold your own candle yeah. and you're like, I don't want to hold it, but he's like, hold it. Yeah. And he he's, lights it. and he's also ready to hold it for me. Not like I'm giving it to him, but it's like my candle isn't lit right now. And he knows yeah, that and it can, can be. Yeah. Sharing. Yeah. Sharing right. And... 
So yeah. he's just always providing that that kind of hope for me, which is um, which is so important, I think, you know, in, in whatever kind of life you want to live. Um, believing in yourself is a really important part of living your best life, I think. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, we all believe in you. Thank you. We always, <laughs> we always knew you were going to do great things, and, and we're just right. We're here to see it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having this conversation and your frankness and openness yeah of course this has been it's been great to uh talk with you and thank you for all of your insightful questions no problem yeah i think it's going to help a lot of people know that they're not alone yeah and maybe we could hold they could think about you and i holding the candle for them and and reaching out through this audio and lighting their candle that we believe in that even though i don't know the people listening right I believe in them because I've seen people yeah. overcome such right. difficulty. And so we are right now holding out that flame for you. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Anxiety. I'm so done with you. With me, Dr. Jody. In this episode, Jude and I have been talking about his journey through anxiety and drug use and how he has been doing the work on being comfortable, being uncomfortable in managing his anxiety through community and daily practices that keep him feeling good. Come on over to my blog post that goes along with this episode for more resources for your recovery journey. The link to that is in the show notes. Please don't forget to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're waiting for season two to drop, come on and hang out with me on TikTok at Dr. Jody.